Welcome to session 23 of A Better Brand of Happiness. This session continues our study of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Uh, we'll start in verse 10 in just a moment, but just to review, uh, my big idea for this section of Scripture is that believers should rejoice in the Lord instead of putting our confidence in our own human efforts. That's really the point of this entire lengthy paragraph of Scripture. It's to contrast the very human and very common tendency to look to ourselves to try to earn favor with God. That's, again, the common tendency. That's the human tendency. The Christian way is to forget about that and instead put our confidence in the Lord. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says in uh, verse 1, uh, rejoice in the Lord. He's that's not just a throwaway phrase, it's a, it's, a, it's a very deep, meaningful way of saying, put your confidence in God. And so, as we've walked through this, we've uh, seen how that develops in this section. Just a very quick review, just to kind of give us an on-ramp into today's uh, section. Um, Paul begins, as I just mentioned in verses 1 through 3, by commanding us again to rejoice in the Lord, which means to get your joy, your confidence, your meaning in life from your relationship to Jesus instead of anything else. And one important aspect of rejoicing in the Lord, according to verses 2 and 3, is watching out for false teachers who want you to do the opposite. They want you to put confidence in your human um, abilities, in your religious works, and so on. And so in verses 2 and 3, Paul warns the church against the threat of human effort, which is incompatible with truly rejoicing in the Lord, truly putting your uh, confidence in Him. And so He commands us to, be, to watch out for these things, to be on guard against them. Because if we do that, if we allow um, false teaching to merge human effort with Christ, we take Christ out of the equation. And that means the only true thing of value that we have spiritually is gone. Because we've replaced the merits of Christ that He gives to us as a gift with our own human efforts, which are actually you're worthless, Paul is going to say. And then in verses 4 through 7, Paul explains how he knows that rejoicing in Christ is better than having common confidence in the human um, efforts. And that's because he's lived the human effort side. He said anyone who's got credentials, anyone who has um, a pedigree or performance religiously, um, he says, I've got just as good or better than any of them. In the first in uh, these verses, verses 4 and following, Paul describes um, his, his uh, Jewish pedigree with four descriptive phrases, and then he follows it with three descriptive phrases that talk about his Jewish performance. In verses 4 through 6, he explained that his religious human pedigree rivals anyone else's. That if you look at his, his life and his legacy um, in terms of like the fact that he's Jewish and came from a good tribe in in Judaism and so on, that he's got it as good as anybody else does. And then in verses, uh, the end of verse 5 through verse 6, he says, also I performed religiously speaking. And so Paul lays out his entire spiritual resume when it comes to someone who has confidence in his human nature, and, or his human efforts, I should say, in verses 4 through 6. But in verses 7 and follow, he says, but, and that means now by contrast, he says, I've learned that um, knowing Christ required me to reject all of that. It required me to stop putting my trust in that. And as he 
seriously reflected on his life in verse 7. He talked about gains and losses. He said, I realized that if I were going to know Christ, I would have to stop caring about all those other things that used to matter so much to me, religiously speaking. And in verse 7, he says, based on what I know now, my religious credentials were actually a barrier to me knowing Christ. They didn't help me in my, in my relationship to God. They prevented me from really knowing God through Jesus Christ. And so then in verses 8 through 11, which is one long, tangled, complicated sentence in the original Greek, Paul explained how, his, how Christ, that is, surpasses human religious accomplishments. In verse 8, he says, knowing Christ as a Christian is more valuable than anything else. He said, what is more, I consider everything a loss. Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, or because of the surpassing worth. He says that uh, this is knowing Christ as a Christian is more valuable than anything else. And that's because the righteousness that Christ gives to Christians is more valuable than anything else. That's verse 9 where he says, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now in verse 10 and following, Paul continues to describe all of this, and he says that, um, that he's going, or I should say, in verses 10 and following, he describes um, in more in detail what it means to know Christ. That's really the point of this subsection. In verse 8, notice it says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That last part, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, is an idea that Paul lays down there in verse 8. And then he talks some more about some important things. And then in verses 10, he resumes talking about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All right, so in verse 8, he introduces the subtopic here about knowing Christ. Now in verses 10 and 11, he's going to pick that up and he's going to detail what exactly he means when he talks about knowing Christ. And that's where we begin today. So look at verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. These verses detail what Paul means when he says, I want to know Christ. He explains what knowing Christ looks like to him and what, why he's rejected all of this other religious performance stuff for this. And so let's get into what Paul means here. Now, again, Paul began describing that it was his goal in verse 8 to know Christ. Now in verses 10 through 11, he's going to describe this goal. And the knowledge that he wants of Christ is not an academic knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It is the knowledge of experience, not the accumulation of facts in the brain. Now the two aren't completely divorced from each other. Everyone who has experiential knowledge of something also knows a lot of facts about it. But there's a difference between the two, and let me try to illustrate that difference. When I was a kid, I went through a phase in my life where I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay? And so this was when the space shuttle was a new thing. And so I was really enamored with the space shuttle and what the space shuttle was and like how it worked as an aircraft and all of that kind of stuff. So I read books about it. And, you know, this was in the pre-internet age. And so... You know, I actually wrote to NASA, I wrote a letter to NASA and requested information, and they sent me a bunch of stuff about it. 
I was uh, fascinated by that massive dashboard on the space shuttle that was filled with gauges and buttons, and I wondered what all of them did. And so I actually found this book that like, kind of would, it had like these fold-out pages that would show you what the dashboard was and kind of describe the knobs and the gauges and all that stuff. And so I, I was interested. I, I, I tried to find as much information as I could to fill my brain with facts about what a shuttle pilot would need to know and what it would um, require to, to fly one of those things. Then somebody told me you had to be good at math to be a pilot. And to be a pilot, you had to be a pilot before you could become an astronaut. And I don't like math, and so I moved on, like, in my interests, okay? So my, um, that's why I say it was a phase that I went through, right? But let's pretend that I continued to be obsessed with becoming a pilot, a shuttle pilot. Let's say that was my goal. And let's say that I actually kept reading as much as I could, and I kept, like, obsessing about what those gauges were actually communicating to the, the pilot of the shuttle. And I figured out what all of those little toggle switches did and what those knobs, what, how they changed anything. I don't know. What, what, I still don't know. What are they all for? I don't know. But let's figure out, let's say that I accumulated all this knowledge and let's say that I bought a flight suit so I would know what that felt like, okay? And let's say somewhere that I found a simulator, okay? Not just a piece of software that would, because th- those exist, right? But like something that would actually like move accordingly to the, um, the movements that I made with the stick. And let's say that I became proficient at flying the space shuttle via simulator and actually landing the thing successfully. Okay, all of these things are accumulated knowledge. And they're the kinds of knowledge that a true astronaut, a true shuttle pilot at least, would have to know. But until I actually flew one in real life, I wouldn't have the experience. I would have a lot of knowledge, a lot of facts, but not the experience that a shuttle pilot, a true astronaut, would have. There's a knowledge that comes from experience that is deeper and richer than just knowing all the facts. And in a similar way, Paul describes that he wants an experiential knowledge of Christ. In the verses preceding this, he's explained what a Christian is, factually speaking, really, really well. These words about rejoicing in the Lord and not putting confidence in the flesh, these all describe the basic principles of the Christian faith really well. But Paul says, I don't just want to know, principally speaking, what a Christian is. I want to be a Christian. I want to identify with Christ in my experience. That's what verses 10 and 11 primarily are describing. When Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, the life that I live, I want to experience these things because of my relationship to Christ. And in experiencing these things, I will know Christ in a deeper and richer way. So what are these things he describes here? Well, the main phrase is in verse 10, the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering are the main things that describe what the kind of experiential knowledge Paul desires is. The phrase in verse 10 that says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection describes the spiritual power that raised Christ from the dead. We have accumulated a lot of medical knowledge. 
in, our, in the course of um, being human beings and um, applying the scientific method to the human body. And especially in the last hundred years or, or less, we've accumulated a lot of knowledge about keeping people alive and preventing things that used to kill people from killing us. But we haven't figured out how to bring somebody back from the dead yet. And that's because being alive is more than the physical processes of the body. There's a spiritual component to it. When Jesus was raised from the dead three days after he was buried, after he died and was buried, it wasn't because somebody came in, like an angel came in and like resuscitated his heart and got it beating again. It was because something spiritual happened to him, something miraculous happened to him. Now, the Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been gifted to every Christian to live the Christian life. The spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, has been given to you and every Christian to live the Christian life. And when Paul says in verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, don't overlook the word power because that's primarily what Paul is talking about. He's saying, I want to know in my experience as a Christian the power that Jesus' resurrection gives me as a Christian. And so he's uh, describing the the spiritual work of power in his life. And of course, this is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. If you read the passages that describe how Christ was raised from the dead, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that did it. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is with us as Christians. He resides in us. That's why we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And so Paul is saying, I want to see God's power at work in my life. Now, in uh, continuing in verse 10, when he says, and participation in his sufferings, Paul goes even deeper and even further into what this experience of being a Christian is like, what it means to to know Christ in his experience. And what he's describing here is persecution, the physical pain, and even death in the case of martyrs that might come to a person because of their identification with Jesus Christ. But he's also talking about the social shame that sometimes comes with being a Christian or the rejection that comes from living a godly life in a godless world. Jesus promised his disciples that there would be a cost to becoming his follower, that there would be suffering that goes with following Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I don't recoil from the suffering that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. I want to go through the suffering because I know that I'll be my knowledge of Christ will grow because of it. But also he he goes further in verse 10 and adds this phrase, becoming like him in his death. This describes in part the suffering that he means in verse, uh, or that he describes in verse 10. Participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. All of this is describing the uh, cost of being a Christian. Remember in Luke 9, 23 and 24, Jesus said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. Paul here isn't describing a physical death wish, although he was willing to die for Christ if that was God's will for him, and ultimately he was. 
not at this point in his life, but later. But Paul's not describing a death wish when he says in verse 10, I want to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. He's not saying I need to be whipped the way that Jesus was whipped and I need to have a crown of thorns placed on my head the way he did. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that Christ promised that there would be a cost that would come to someone following him. And Christ described it as taking up your cross. He means it in a metaphorical way, but, but it's a good metaphor because it describes how painful it can be at times to suffer for Christ and to follow Jesus Christ. And the ultimate goal of this then in verse, is described in verse 11, knowing Christ is correlated with participating in his resurrection yourself. Verse 11 says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, if I follow Christ... Even though it means dying to myself, as Jesus said. Even though it means suffering because I'm a Christian. Eventually, on the day that God raises the dead, I'll be raised in Christ and perfected. That's what all of verses 10 and 11 is saying. Now, let me take a little bit more time and describe what's going on here. What Paul is describing here is a doctrine that we would call the perseverance of the saints. And the perseverance of the saints is a doctrine that means that everyone who truly knows Jesus Christ will continue following Christ in faith and good works from the time that they trust Christ to the end of their lives. That doesn't mean there's a perfect straight line up in faith and good works. There can be ups and downs like the stock market. But over time, you would see a progression. And ultimately, no true Christian is ever going to ultimately deny Christ and turn away from him completely. There might be moments of weakness like Peter who denied knowing Jesus, but he repented of that and later on did not deny him. All right? So I'm not saying everyone who ever shrinks back from following Christ in the moment is not a Christian. But what I'm saying is you can't turn your back on Christ permanently and be a Christian. All right? This is what the perseverance of the saints means, that if you're in Christ... For the rest of your life, from the time you trusted him until you die, you will continue growing in faith and in good works. Paul is using this doctrine of perseverance, and he's using these phrases in verses 10 about the power of Christ's resurrection, participating in his sufferings, um, becoming like him in his death. He's using these phrases to describe the pain, the real physical and emotional and and, and turmoil and pain that come from becoming a Christian. Paul is saying God's, God's pathway for my life to knowing Christ is going to go through persecution. It's going to go through pain. And Paul says, I know all of this, but I know that knowing Christ through this is better than all of the human accomplishments I turned my back on. And that's because at the end, verse 11, the resurrection from the dead, then all of the the turmoil, the pain, the suffering, that'll be over. And for all eternity, he will know Jesus Christ personally. And so what Paul is describing here is the perseverance of the saints. You don't achieve salvation by suffering for Christ. You don't achieve salvation by doing anything at all, actually. And verse 9 makes this clear. Remember, look look back at verse 9. Paul says, and to be found in him and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You do not become a Christian by doing anything other than putting your faith in Christ. And that's not a, that's not a, a work, okay? That's a gift that God gives you. 
But when you become a believer and have by faith the righteousness of Christ applied to you, that's what Paul's been talking about from verses 1 to 9. When you are rejoicing in the Lord and when God's, the perfections of Jesus have been applied to you by the grace of God, God also gives you as part of that grace a new power in your life. The power that Paul is describing in verse 10 when he says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. Everyone who identifies as a Christian has this power, and that means all of us will come to a crossroads in life, not just one, probably more than one. All of us from the time that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and start walking in faith and good works, start growing in the Christian life, at some point in our life, and probably, as I said, at many points in our lives, we will come to a crossroad. We will come to many crossroad moments. You know what crossroads are. They're an opportunity to turn one direction or another. All right? It's a fork in the road. You can't just keep going. You've got to make a choice. The choice in those crossroad moments will either be to follow Jesus and keep following Jesus, even though it's going to cost you and bring pain in your life, or to stop following Jesus in order to preserve your dignity, your um, like your religious um, status, okay, all the stuff that Paul says he considers now rubbish in the previous verses. Okay, when, when Paul met Christ on the road to Emmaus, in a sense he could have said, I'd rather just be a good Jew, thanks, okay, and refused Christ. And then throughout his life, as he's been challenged about whether or not he is truly following Judaism, he had to choose between being a good Jew or being a Christian. And you and I will face the same thing too. We will face those crossroad moments whether the choice is either to keep following Jesus or to stop following Jesus in order to preserve something, your friendships maybe, your inheritance if it's your parents who don't like the fact that you're a Christian and threaten to cut you off. There may be a financial cost. Your marriage. I know Christians who have lost their spouse because they wanted to follow Jesus. And the choice is almost that stark. The ultimatum issued by their spouse, either quit being so religious from an unsaved person's perspective, stop being such a Jesus fanatic, and let's go back to doing the things we used to do, or I'm going to leave you, all right? And I know people who've lost their marriages because of this. That's a tough decision. Maybe your relationship with your kids, if they don't have the same faith in Christ as you. You might have to choose between them not accepting you the way that you are as a Christian and not wanting to have an ongoing relationship with you or your faith in Christ. These days we, well, I should say in our, in our world, in our culture, most of us have not faced this decision yet, but it may be coming. There may be a day when you have to choose between your job and following Christ. The hostility that is growing in the realm that we call free speech, to not just say whatever you truly believe, but to only say what is acceptable in society. All of this is starting to collide with what we believe as Christians. And I've heard of, uh, you know, in court, the government prosecuting people and saying, well, of course, the, the First Amendment um, gives you the right to believe whatever you want, but that's in your heart. That doesn't mean you can actually act out your beliefs. Of course, 
the First Amendment says that. It says Congress will make no law, you know, whatever, abridging the exercise, the free exercise of that means like living out your faith, okay? But people are trying to make the argument, the government in some cases is trying to make the argument that you have the right to believe what you want, but not to say or to act out according to your Christian belief. So the day is coming where your job might be on the line, where someone might say to you, either stop talking about Jesus or lose your job. Either stop, you know, refusing to go with your clients to whatever sinful thing they want to do as part of the sales process if you're in sales. You know, either you got to keep doing that or you got to follow your Christian convictions. There's also this. I, I recently saw a video of, uh, of a megachurch in China that was seized by the government and bulldozed. I mean, you can watch the video of them just taking this church down to the ground. We may face a choice like that. You may face a choice someday where your home is seized or where this building, this church building that we put a ton of time and money and effort into creating as a tool for our ministry, there may be a time where we're told either change your doctrine or we're taking your building. In all of these crossroad moments in life, we have a choice either to follow Jesus and pay the price or say, nope, the price is too high. And the Bible says that it is only your faith in Christ that saves you, but if you have faith in Christ, you will not abandon him ultimately. You will not turn your back on Jesus. You will go through the suffering. And in those moments, you're identifying with Jesus, the Jesus who said, take up your cross and follow me. In those moments, you'll have this choice. But the payoff for these choices is verse 11, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives will know what it means to be a Christian because they'll be raised from the dead. And there'll be many people who think they are Christians who say, yes, I put my faith in Jesus, but they don't pay the price when it, when it when, when it comes to it. They're not willing to identify with Jesus over everything. They'll take their spouse or their job over following Jesus Christ. And they may think they're Christians, but they're going to find out on the day of resurrection that their faith was in something else, not in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is talking about this all in terms of his knowledge. He's saying, I want to know Christ in these ways. And so here is the implicit promise in what he is saying. That although there may be a heavy, all of us are going to pay some kind of cost as Christians, but there may be a heavy cost for us as Christians for following Jesus Christ. But if we are willing to take on that cost because we love Jesus Christ, what happens is in our experience, we know Christ in a greater way. Instead of believing, yes, all who, suffer, all who follow Jesus Christ will suffer persecution, that's what Jesus said. Instead of knowing that intellectually, we know it literally. We know it in our daily existence. And there may come a time in your life where you feel like you've lost everything. You've lost your job, your means of income, your home, your relationships. What do you have in those moments? You have Jesus who suffered far more than any one of us will ever suffer for his sake. And you have his promise, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And in those moments, 
The truth that you know about Jesus intellectually, the things you've learned from the Bible will be lived out in your experience. You'll have a closer walk with God than you ever thought possible. This is what Paul's saying, I want to know as a Christian. This is the reality that he desired in his life. And we'll come to it later on, but Paul's going to say, everyone who's mature ought to look at, look at life this way. All right, So this isn't just for Paul. Paul's saying, this is my reality right now, suffering in prison. But truly, every Christian is going to have to face this. And in those moments, the choice is this. Do I want to really know Jesus? Or do I want to keep living my life the way that I always have with a layer of Jesus kind of spread on top of it? All right, that's, or, or not. Or do I want to preserve what I have and I'm willing to turn my back on Jesus? Every Christian is going to face this in some way. Paul is saying, I was willing to turn my back on everything that mattered to me as a religious man. I was willing to turn my back on my family heritage, the tribe that I came from, the fact that I was circumcised on the eighth day just as God commanded in the law. Paul's saying, I was willing to turn my back on all of this because even though it was going to cost me, I knew that going through that cost would cause me to know Christ more. And then after my death, I'll be raised again, incorruptible, and I'll know God for eternity. Paul's saying, when I weighed those two choices out, the cost of following Jesus but the benefit of knowing him far outweighed all of the human pride, all of the human glory, all of the things that used to matter to me. And so Paul says it was really an easy decision. When faced with rejoicing in the Lord or rejoicing in my own accomplishments, Paul says, I chose to rejoice in the Lord because of the grace of God working in my life. And so what Paul's describing here is truly a better brand of happiness. It's not the kind of happiness that we ordinarily choose. Pain over, over um, you know, pampering or protection or pleasure. But it's a better brand of happiness because it's one that causes you to know God in a, in a genuine, like, literal, experiential way and that gives you eternal life. This is a better brand of happiness. 